Well, it's good to be back to you this morning. Last week, I uh, had the opportunity to preach at Old Powhatan Baptist Church, which is the first church I worked at back there 17 years after they hired me. It's their 250th anniversary. Isn't that amazing that this church has been around 250 years? Uh, faithful church, and uh, they've got guest preachers coming once a month. So I was the guest preacher for April. Um, next month, they've got uh, Jeff Orge, who was the president of Gateway Seminary, coming. And I thought, man, I, I really, I'm the opening band for that guy. You know what I mean? Um, but it was awesome to be there. Uh, but you know what I did in the middle of the service? Uh, they were singing, and I pulled up my phone, and I was looking just to make, church, make sure church was really happening here, that you guys are really doing it, and, uh, and I probably talked about you all way too much during my sermon uh, in a good way. So I uh, definitely miss you all, and it's good to be back. So Luke 9 is where we're at. Pick up where Pastor David left off. Pastor David knocked it out of the park last week, and, um, and he has put the ball on the tee for me this morning. So how do you explain the galaxy that we live in and all its complexities in about 30 minutes? Okay, um, that would be hard to do, right? Uh, how could you explain the most beautiful sunset that you've ever seen to somebody? Uh, to actually put words to that in a way where you didn't walk away feeling like they just don't get it, they weren't there, they don't get it. Um, how could you explain why you love your kids? Or why, how, how you love your, your spouse, right? Like, how could you explain that to somebody and really feel like you, uh, you did an adequate job with your words? Well, that stuff all might just be easy in elementary this morning compared to plumbing the depths of this passage. This is one of the most uh, glorious, astounding, immense events to ever occur on the earth, what you see in this passage this morning. R.C. Sproul said that when it comes to preaching this passage, he called it a Herculean task. Okay, so no pressure this morning. Uh, but eight days after the feeding of the 5,000 and Peter's confession, which uh, Pastor David talked about last week, Jesus takes Peter and he takes James and John as well and he takes them to uh, a mountain to pray. And let's read what happens. Luke 9, starting in verse 28. Some eight days after these things, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him. They were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Let's pray. Lord, what a job in front of us all this morning to try to explain the passage, understand it, apply it to our lives. Um, but we know that with your strength, God, uh, with your wisdom, with your illumination, we're going to be able to understand the scriptures and we'll be able to apply them to our lives. And 
and uh, hopefully, Lord, make changes to our lives as we go to leave here today. Uh, Lord, I pray that my weakness, God, would be an opportunity for your strength to pour out and show forth, and that your power would be made perfect in my weakness this morning, Lord. So use me as your instrument, and use your people, Lord, uh, to, to receive the word and listen to the word well. Uh, this is your time. Be glorified in it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So before we dive into what happens on this mountain here in this passage, let's just talk about the nature of Jesus a little bit, okay, so we can really fully understand what's going on here. First thing I want to say to you this morning, just a theological fact for you to write down, is that Jesus was fully God and fully man, and he will be so forever, okay? Jesus was fully God and fully man, and he's going to be fully God and fully man uh, forever. He's 100% God. He's not 50% God and 50% man. He's 100% God and he is 100% man. He was born to a human mother. He had a human body. In Luke 2, he was increasing in wisdom and stature in that human body. The way that you might talk about your child uh, increasing in wisdom and stature. Uh, in John 4, Jesus is thirsty the way that you and I get thirsty. In Matthew 4, Jesus is hungry, the way you and I get hungry. In Luke 8, we saw Jesus, remember, take a nap in the boat, right? He was tired. He was weary. All of this is incredibly human. People around Jesus saw him as a man. That's why the people in his hometown had such a hard time reconciling this idea that he would be God in the flesh. Uh, to them, he was just the carpenter's son. They watched him grow up. His own brothers did not believe in him for the same reasons. So Jesus was so fully human that those who grew up with him and lived around him, they didn't recognize him as anything more than human. In Isaiah 53, one of the most famous Old Testament prophecies about Jesus goes out of its way to say there's nothing on the surface that would have said, this is God in the flesh. Okay, if you just saw him walking down in the street. It says, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So as you would pass by Jesus in the street, um, there, there was no reason to stop and go, hey, that was the Messiah right there. I'm pretty sure I looked in his eyes. I felt it. He was human. On the other hand, he's fully God as well. So in the same um, the same book, okay, the same prophecy, Isaiah not only prophesies about his humanity, prophesies about his deity. He says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So he is Mighty God. As his birth is heralded in Luke 2, uh, maybe you'll remember the angel's saying, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In Hebrews 1, the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 102. He applies it to Jesus. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. So he's fully God. But as being fully man, his divinity is concealed. It's cloaked. And it was revealed on the Father's timetable. It was on the Father's timetable that, that Jesus would 
reveal his, his godhood to people. Right? Remember there are times where people would be healed and he would say to them what? Don't tell anybody about this. Because it was on the Father's timetable. But here are five humans get to see the radiance of his divinity on full display. They get to see the glory of his divine nature. The cloak is pulled back. Peter, James, and John, and Moses and Elijah get to behold something that is out of this world. Actually out of this world, right? Something out of this world that is in the world. Something that is truly breathtaking. And obviously for Peter, James, and John, it's got to be even more magnificent. Elijah and Moses, they've seen some things at this point, okay? Uh, But for Peter, James, and John, this had to really blow their minds. Matthew and Mark's account actually gives us the term transfiguration, which has been associated with this uh, event. Matthew 17, verse 2, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. The Greek word for transfigured is where we get our English word metamorphosis. So we're talking about a great change that has taken place here. A radical transformation has taken place before their eyes. And there are two things that stand out in Matthew's record and in Luke's record. First of all, Matthew says that Jesus' face became different. It was shining like the sun, is what Matthew says. And this should make us think of another instance in biblical history where somebody had an encounter with God and their face was altered. Exodus 34, Moses goes to Mount Sinai to meet with God, and uh, after he saw just a part of his glory, his face is radiant. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him, talking about the Lord. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. Now here's the difference between Moses in Exodus 34 and Jesus in Luke 9. The radiance on Moses' face is not because of the glory of Moses. It's not why his face is shining. What's going on with Moses' face is a reflection of the glory of God that Moses saw. Right? Moses had been in the presence of the glory of God, the divine glory of God, and his face was casting that back to Aaron and casting that back to the Israelites. But in the case of Jesus, his face is not shining because he's reflecting the glory of God. His face is shining because He is God. It's the glory of God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. Hebrews 1, verse 3, and He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. 
When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what's going on here is the glory of the second person of the Trinity is on display. The curtain of his humanity is pulled back. The weight of who he is is being shown. His clothes are white and gleaming. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this detail. Mark gives us even more particulars. Mark 9, verse 3, And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Nobody could have made garments this white. Nobody could have done it. Nobody could have bleached the clothes this white. It was pure. It was without, without blemish. It was dazzling. And so just think of the impression that this must have left on Peter, that this must have left on James and on John. I don't think they ever forgot it. In fact, we know they didn't because they wrote about it. John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's not just flowery language from John. That's not just abstract thinking from John. Like that's, that's not symbolic for him. He saw it. He saw it with his own eyes and he wrote about it. 2 Peter 1, listen to what Peter says. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter's saying that when we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about stuff that some people sat down in a room and made up stories and these kind of fantastical tales about him and then we repeated those things and through this oral culture, these tales became known as fact. Peter's saying, no, it wasn't like that. We saw this stuff. We saw it with our own eyes. It says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter directly talks about this in his second letter. Peter had some well-known lapses in his discipleship process, right? We know that he denied Jesus three times. We know that he was rebuked by Paul because he treated Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians, differently when the Jewish Christians were around as opposed to how he treated them when they were not around. You see that in, in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul talks about rebuking Peter to his face about this. But in all his lapses in his discipleship process, he never forgot this. He never forgot the metamorphosis of Christ that he saw with his own eyes on the mountain. Now, there's two saints of the past with Jesus. You got Moses there and Elijah there. You know how people always say, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to talk to, you know, Abraham about this, that, or the other, right? You hear people say all the time, I can't wait to get to heaven and sit down and have a conversation with Daniel. Those poor guys are going to be really busy for all of eternity. Every brother or sister in the kingdom is going to want a minute with them, right? Um, we have time. We have all of eternity, Okay. Peter, James, and John don't even need to wait for heaven. They see Moses and Elijah on the earth. Now, why Moses and Elijah? Why is it not David and Samuel? Why is it not Deborah and Ruth? Why is it not Joseph and, and Jonah? Okay, why, why is it that we see Moses and Elijah there? 
Well, it's because they both represent something. Moses represents the law of the Old Covenant. Moses is the face of the law in many ways, right? You think of the law, think of Moses. He's the one that God gave the law to, to give it to Israel. He delivered the law to the people on God's behalf. So Moses is representative of the law of the Old Covenant. Elijah represents the prophets of the Old Covenant. Elijah is the epitome of an Old Testament prophet. Like if you're growing up and you're an Old Testament prophet, you got Elijah's poster on your wall, all right? This is who you want to be like when you grow up. And so you have the representative of the law and you have the representative of the prophets there talking with Jesus. And what are they talking about? His departure after what he must accomplish at Jerusalem. If you go back to Luke 9, verse 22, Jesus told his disciples what was going to happen in Jerusalem. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. That's what's going to happen in Jerusalem, and then he is going to ascend. Then he is going to depart. So Jesus and Moses and Elijah are standing there talking about how Jesus is going to go and suffer and die for his children and how he's going to be resurrected and and how his sacrificial death will satisfy Moses' law and how his sacrificial death and his resurrection and his ascension will fulfill every bit of Elijah's prophecies and the prophecies of the other prophets. And Jesus' life now is just steamrolling toward this redemptive work. Everything's moving in that direction. In a couple of weeks, you'll see in verse 51, this crucial verse, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Once Luke says that in verse 51, Jesus turns his head toward Jerusalem, everything just starts just barreling toward the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. Everything is driving toward what he must accomplish in Jerusalem. And that's what they're discussing. There's a couple things about Moses and Elijah being there that just kind of amaze me. One has to do with Moses. Do you remember what happened to to Moses? I'm going to be honest with you. As a leader, when I read this part of the Bible, I go, man, that's hard. That's hard. I mean, this guy put up with a lot of stuff for a long time. But what happens? He struck the rock in anger, and God says, you're not going in the promised land. So as a leader, I read that, and I'm like, oh, man, come on, let him in. But he shouldn't have done it. The Lord is just. But here's what that text says. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. If I'm ever mad about something going on in the church, I never want to preach about it that next Sunday. All right? All pastors should follow that rule, lest they get in the pulpit and say, Listen now, you rebels, and then get the Lord's discipline. Okay? So, He says, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So Moses is not going to lead them in. After all that time in the wilderness, it's Joshua's generation that's going to go in. And yet, here in this text, where is Moses? By the grace of God, Moses is on the earth in the promised land. I think it's so cool. In God's grace, Moses does get to see it in this moment. 
And he's not just there, but he's there with Jesus, the fulfillment of the law, the eternal son of God. It's got to be a sweet thing for Moses' soul. The other is just the reality of what's happening here. The other thing I think is really, really cool about this passage is that Moses and Elijah have taken a brief break from heaven and a brief break from beholding the glory of the Father in heaven to beholding the glory of the Son on earth. And I don't think it's a lesser experience because the Father and the Son are equals. They're co-equals. And the glory of the Son is just as great as the glory of the Father. And so here they are standing in the glory of the Son. We don't know what they're talking about. We know the subject matter. We don't know all the ins and outs. Jesus went there to pray. Maybe he was praying about what was going to happen in Jerusalem. Maybe it was weighing upon him. The death that he would suffer. Maybe they've come to comfort him. Maybe they've come to encourage him. Maybe they're there simply to worship him. We, we don't know all the ins and outs but it's an awesome scene. Peter's reaction is exactly what mine would have been. It says, and as these were leaving, so Moses and Elijah are about to leave, Peter's like, no, 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 Let, let's make some tents. Let's stay the night. I, I, I'll, I'll whip up a few tabernacles here. I love how he's not even worried about Peter, James, and John. He's not worried about himself. He's not worried about his friends. He's like, we, we don't need tents. We'll get you guys tents. We'll just hang out, all right? And, and you can't blame him for that, right? But remember, what is Jesus discussing? Going to Jerusalem, dying and rising again. They can't stay here. It's not the purpose for Jesus' life. The glorious Son had to go to the cross and die for people that are not glorious. He had to go and he had to give up his life for Moses' sin. He had to go and die. For Elijah's sin, he had to go and die. For Peter and James and John's sin, he had to go and, and, and die. For your sin and for my sin, he had to go and die. So no, Peter, we can't stay on the mountain. Human as his reaction may have been, he has put his feelings in the way of Jesus' task. Matthew 16 he does this there as well. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This should nev shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Listen to this. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Jesus was firmly set on the interests of the Father. And this moment, again, human as, reaction, as his reaction is, when Peter says, let's just stay here, he is putting his interests in between Jesus and the interests of the Father, and Jesus will not have it. They can't stay. Peter didn't realize this. He didn't realize this is what he was doing, nor do we realize it most of the time when we do it. These are the lessons we learn in discipleship. You can't stay on the mountaintop. You, you have to keep moving. You have to keep preaching. You have to keep doing the will of God until one day, like Moses and like Elijah, you get to go home. But until then, you can't stay on the mountain. Until then, your life is just one surrender to the will of the Father after another. And Jesus is the model of that. Peter 
As he's speaking, a cloud forms and overshadows them. They're afraid as they enter into the cloud. Again, also a human reaction, right? Matthew and Mark also record this cloud. What's going on with this cloud? What is this? We, we really don't know for sure, okay? Matthew adds the cloud is bright. But here's my argument this morning, that in light of the context, in light of God's glory showing in the sun, the Father speaking, Jesus, the fulfillment of the law being there, his face shining like Moses' face uh, when Moses reflected the glory of God, in light of all of that, it might be reasonable for us to associate this cloud with the cloud from Exodus 33 and 34. Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock as the cloud passed by. The Lord descends in a cloud as he speaks to Moses and tells him that he's a compassionate God of loving kindness who is slow to anger and as he gives the law to Moses. And so maybe the same cloud. And here God is speaking again. It's one of only three times in which the Father speaks audibly from heaven in the New Testament. It happens at Jesus' baptism. And it happens here in a third time in John 12, verse 28, when Jesus prays that the Father would glorify his name, and the Father says, I have glorified my name, and I, I will do it again. But what the Father says here, it's real close to what he says at the baptism of Jesus. Matthew 3, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So here are the words here. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So the sonship of Christ, the fact that he is the son of God, that is affirmed, right? Just like it is at the baptism. But he calls him the chosen one and he adds a command. Listen to him. And these words from the Father in verse 35 highlight the identity of the Son of God and the authority of the Son of God. He is the Son of God, and as the Son of God, He is authoritative. What this is here on the mountain is a power meeting. The power meeting of all power meetings, right? If I told you that like, we were getting like Elon Musk together and Jeff Bezos who runs, uh, runs Amazon, uh, what's that little company? I couldn't get, get my mind around it there for a second, right? Runs Amazon and, and, and maybe the CEO of Ford, right? He's getting all these people together in one place. Jerry Jones owns the Cowboys, right? Uh, you get them all in one place, you say, that's, that's, a, that's a meeting of power brokers right there, right? There's a bunch of powerful people meeting in one place. This is a power meeting. Kind of the power meetings of all power meetings, actually. You have the champion of the law of God, Moses. You have the champion of the prophets, Elijah. Don't, don't sleep on Peter, James, and John, all right? These are men who are in the inner circle of Jesus' inner circle and who have their names, according to the book of Revelation, written, inscribed on the halls of heaven. So these are historically great men. But at this power meeting, there are no doubts who the most important one is. The Father makes it clear. It's Jesus. 
He's the Son of God. He's the one the law and the prophets are about. He's the one who commands the men who will be the foundation of the church. He's the only one who can lay claim to being the way and the truth and the life and the only way to the Father. He's the only one who can call on the heavy laden to come to Him and find true rest. He's the only one who can call Himself the bread of life and satisfy the hunger of the soul. He's the only one who can die for sin. He is the Messiah. The Son, He is the authority. And the voice is done speaking and they're just alone with Jesus again. What an experience. Luke says they're silent about it for a time. Not forever, right? John wrote about it. Peter wrote about it. Peter's told the story to Mark who wrote it down. Peter talks about it outright in that second letter. But for now, they're quiet. They're silent. Why? We don't know for sure. we got to think it's what Jesus wanted. If he wanted them to tell others, they would have. It wasn't the time to tell yet. Again, it's on the Father's timetable. I'm hesitant to mess around with a ton of application. Okay, The, the job of the preacher every week, whether it's me or David or Ben getting up here into this pulpit, the job of the preacher every week is to read the Bible explain the Bible, and apply the Bible. That's it. All right? If you mess up one of those three things, you're not preaching, okay? So I need to apply it, but I'm so hesitant. It's like this jewel. I don't want to put my fingerprints on it, okay? But I I do think that there is something that this passage says to us that's important. This morning in particular that I just want to point out, which is just this. This passage reminds us that heaven is coming. This passage reminds us that glory is awaiting us. And I think we can forget that sometimes. We get so bogged down in this world, so consumed and absorbed by this earth that we forget this is all transient. But if you read this passage and you go, I want that. I want to be in the presence of of Jesus. I want to hang out with Moses and Elijah as it happens. I want what Peter, James, and John get here. What I want to say to you this morning is you're going to get it if you're a believer in Christ. It's going to happen. It's going to come. You're going to see Him in all of His radiant glory. In fact, in Revelation, as the new Jerusalem of heaven is being explained and described by John, he says this, The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. So the glory of God will light the life that we have to come, the city that is to come. Heaven is as as, as we long for it. The glory of God will light it by day, and the glory of the sun will light it by night. No need for a sun or a moon. Maybe you read this and you go, I want to talk about the cross and the resurrection and the ascension with Moses and Elijah. You will. A day will come where we will stand with the saints of old. And it won't just be them. It'll be your grandpa that believed in Jesus that you can't wait to see again. Your parent who believed in Jesus you can't wait to see again. Your spouse who believed in Jesus you can't wait to see again. You won't be married in heaven anymore. Right? 
Jesus tells us that that's just for this life. You'll have a new sort of relationship there. We'll all be the bride of the Lamb together, but you'll see Him again. We will stand with those people, with the saints who have gone before us, and with the saints who will come after us, and together we will worship the Son of God in all of His glory. I think there will be time to, to not just, it, it's not just like you're at church all the time. I think there's going to be time to sit down and have conversations together to recount just how awesome the Lord is. And I think there will be time to sit down with all these Old Testament saints you long to talk to. And you might think, all of them? Listen, there's a limited number of people there, and you have forever. So all of them. It might take us a while. It might take you a couple thousand years. But all we'll have is time in the glory of God together. And the conversation will not get old. So Moses, Elijah, Enoch, Peter, James, John, Augustine, Reverend Billy Graham, Adrian Rogers, everybody's going to be there. And it's going to be awesome to spend eternity recounting the glory of the Lamb in the presence of the Lamb. This changes our perspective. That's Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians, that this changes our perspective. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So Paul's argument is that when you look at eternal things, it gives you a different perspective on the transient things. That you're able to play this comparison game where you take the suffering of this world and you compare it to the weight of glory that is to come, and that when you play that comparison game, the suffering of this world looks momentary and it looks light. When I think of momentary light things, I think of like cotton candy, right? It's very momentary, touches your tongue and just, just gone, and it's very light. Give me a thousand bags of cotton candy. It's not going to weigh me down, right? It's not hard to carry. That's the transient things of this world. The world to come is eternal. It's life that does not come to an end. It will last as long as God himself. It will last forever. And this time... You know how Peter just wanted to stay there? We'll stay there. No need to make tents. Because the sun has gone to prepare a, a place for us already. We will stay there forever in the divine, radiant glory of the Lamb. And to that we just say, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, give us eternal perspective on things. There's so many small things in this world that we let eat us alive. It happens, God. It happens. We just let, let the stuff of this earth consume us to the point of being overcome by anxiety, worry, anger, frustration. But when we play the comparison game, we see the stuff is actually light, it's momentary. 
And the transfiguration was a glimpse. It was a preview of what's to come. We long, Lord, to be in your presence. We long, God, to be with the saints of the past, to worship you together. And so, Father, I pray this morning that um, if this is a wake-up call that we needed, I needed it. I know I needed this text this week, God. This is a wake-up call we needed to, to lift our eyes up off of the hills themselves and to look to where our help comes from and to look to the one who has rescued us eternally and to look to the king of the kingdom, that we would do that. That we would not navel-gaze, that we would not become obsessive over the things of this world. And that we would remember who we are because of what your son has done for us and dying for our sin and where we're going in light, in light of what he has done. The, the treasure, the reward that he has secured for us. God, get our perspective straight through this text. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, here's what we're going to do now. We're going to respond.